0: Mark chapter 3, verse 7, to the end of the chapter. Jesus withdrew his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre, Sidon. When a great crowd heard that all he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many. So that all who had disease pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And then he went out to the mountains and called to him those who desire. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name of Barnabas, that is, the sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judah, Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, him, again so that they could not even eat. And when the, his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons. He cast out the demons, and he called them to him and said to them in a parable, how can Satan cast out demons if a kingdom is divided against itself? That kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his good. Unless he first binds a the strong man, then indeed he might plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of men. And whatever blaspheme they can they order, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has, forgive, has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brother came, and standing outside, they went out to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brother are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about those to, who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of, the God, of God will of God, he is my brother and my sister and mother. The word of the Lord, you may be seated.
1: Now this fall and winter, we're going through the Gospel of Mark. And uh, we are going through it rather quickly, taking larger portions, sometimes a whole chapter of the book, uh, mostly to be able to catch the same vision that Mark had of Jesus and wants to communicate to us. Mark does want to give us lots of these stories and sayings to to let us see Jesus as he is, so that's what we want to get out of this book as well. And uh, we're looking at this passage that has several incidents happening in it, and we're trying to find the connection between them. Why does Mark string them together? What is his point? And the theme that connects these different stories together is the theme of rejection and acceptance. It's how different people relate to Jesus. It's what they do, what they see in Him, which makes it very relevant to us, because that's all of us. We're looking at Jesus, and we're saying, what what are we going to do with Him? What is the right response? So it leaves us with the challenge to determine who Jesus is and how we are to respond to Him. So as we look at our text, uh, very uh, simply, we'll look at real-time reactions first. We'll walk through it and see how people responded to Jesus at that time. Then we'll look at possible options that it leaves for us. What are our options as far as responses to Jesus? Then we'll look at this question of ultimate rejection or blasphemy against the Holy Spirit— Uh, Some of you are wrestling with that. We're going to try to answer that question clearly. And then we will end on new allegiance. New allegiance. So real-time reactions, possible options, ultimate rejection, and new allegiance. I apologize it's not alliterated, but I could not make it work this week. All right, so if you have... The Bible with you or in front of you, if you open it up, you, I just want to walk through the text and I want to point out the different reactions of various groups of people. So we start in verse 7, 7 through 10, we see a great crowd of people following Jesus. Now they're coming from all over the area, basically as, as far as you could walk, you know, and sometimes it would take longer than a day to get there. So they're coming from Edomia in the south, from beyond the Jordan in the east, from Tyre and Sidon in the north, and then from the center of Jewish life in Jerusalem, which is in Judea. And Jesus is in Galilee, and so everybody's flocking to him. They're all coming. There are thousands of people, uh, which makes it dangerous for everybody. There's, there's kind of you know, concerns that people are going to trample on each other or on Jesus. So Jesus comes up with this strategy of teaching from a boat. So they actually get in a boat, pull back a little bit, and so water is sort of the buffer, and he's able to teach because, yes, he's concerned with healing, which is largely why people come, but he wants to speak to the people that come. He wants to teach them. It's important to see that Jesus is not content just to heal. He also wants to teach. He wants to explain what God is doing through him. Now, this crowd of people coming from everywhere makes it clear that Jesus simply cannot be ignored. Now, you may have different opinions of Jesus and we'll work through some of the possibilities, but you can't really ignore Him. It has been true since Jesus came, the world has not been able to ignore Him. Now, look, look at our history since Jesus came. Global history. You know, not every country is Christian. Of course, there's large portions of the globe that reject Jesus, but it is indisputable that Jesus has shaped human history since He came. Whether people accept Him or reject Him, civilizations that try to build themselves on Him and those who build against Him. But nobody's really ignoring Him. Nobody's really able to simply forget about Him. The world cannot forget about Jesus. Now, the second reaction we see comes from the demons Look at verse 11. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, as he he just even gets close to them, they fall down before him and cry out, You are the Son of God. They know who Jesus is. They know. In the spiritual realm, there is no blindness. They know exactly who Jesus is and they fall down before him, and they proclaim his true identity. I mean, it's amazing, as you read the Gospels, everybody's confused, everybody has lots of opinions on Jesus, not the demons. They know exactly who Jesus is. The problem is, of course, that they have the right knowledge, but they're not obeying Jesus. They are not in Jesus' kingdom. And so we learn that, that the right view of Jesus by itself is not enough to enter his kingdom. You remember that James, the brother of Jesus, compares the superficial, non saving, kind of empty faith of some people with the faith of the demons. That's his analogy. He says there's faith that saves, there's real faith, and there's that kind of fake, empty faith. And he says that that fake, empty faith is like that of the demons. He says, You believe that God is one, you do well. It's, it's right to believe that God is one. Even the demons believe and shudder. James says there's lots of demons that actually know exactly what God is like. They know exactly who Jesus is. They shudder, and yet they are not in His kingdom. And so are many people. They know who Jesus is, but they don't have a relationship with Him, and their faith is empty. Now, thirdly, in verses 13 through 19, we see Jesus choosing 12 apostles to be with him, uh, to be with him, to preach, to cast out demons by his authority to heal. And none of them says no to Jesus. I think it's remarkable that Jesus decides to call whom he desires, he appoints them, he chooses them, and they follow his lead. Now, of course, the presence of Judas Iscariot, the one that Mark tells us, this is the Judas that will, in fact, betray Jesus. Mark tells us that's the same person. And his presence raises questions what these men actually think of Jesus. Now, we know there's there's sort of a development that happens in the face of these men, right? They don't start out completely knowing who Jesus is, following him faithfully, no, it develops. There's a change. And for Judas, that change doesn't lead to full faith. It actually leads to rejection of Jesus. Now, the number of the apostles is significant. And if you read the Bible, and, you know, if you are even just a casual reader of the Bible, you know there were 12 tribes of Israel. You know that 12 is significant to God. And so what is Jesus doing here by taking these people and making them 12 apostles. 12, an apostle just means sent ones. They're missionaries. They're, they're his, his um, ambassadors. What is he doing with the 12? Why 12? Well, he's doing nothing less than instituting a new nation. Because in the context here, he's being rejected by the nation of Israel. These teachers of the law in the next passage reject him. And so Jesus is making a new Israel. He's making a new nation. He's making a new community, a new kingdom. That's why he came. He proclaims this new kingdom. This kingdom is not just going to include ethnic Israelites. That's not enough. You have to be in the kingdom by faith. You have to be in the kingdom by God's choice. You have to be appointed. You have to be given a new name as he does with many or with some of these. And so this is what he's doing. There's a new nation coming the nation that will accept Him as opposed to the nation that just rejected Him. Fourthly, in verses 20 through 21, we see Jesus' own family deeply concerned about Him. Now, as you read through this chapter, notice how different people in real time react so differently to the same person. It's amazing just how how different these responses are, and it has to do with our own hearts, our own circumstances. We're not just seeing Jesus as he is, everybody objectively observing Jesus, no. We're filtering it. We're fil- filtering through our experience, through our own theological assumptions, through our own pain, through our own joy. And so we react to him in very different ways. And so his own family, and who knows Jesus better than his own family, his own siblings, his own mother? They come to him, and their goal is very simple. They want to take him away, and maybe even put him away, because they think he's out of his mind. I mean, they think he's crazy. They think there's something wrong with his view of reality, because how can this person institute a new nation of Israel? Who does he think he is that he can just pick the new twelve new tribes? Who does he think he is that he can just say he can forgive sins? In the previous chapter, we, we, we saw this passage of Jesus saying, your sins are forgiven. And everybody says, what? Nobody can forgive sins by God. This is a person who's claiming to be God, which in the minds of his family means he's out of his mind. He's crazy. So let's protect him. I think they're compassionate. I don't think they're judging him. I think they're just trying to take care of their relative. They're trying to say, before he hurts himself or hurts someone else, let, let's bring him in. There's all these crowds, it's dangerous, let's just keep him safe, let's bring him home. Now it's amazing that no proximity to Jesus, no human connection to Jesus guarantee that we actually see Jesus as he is. I mean, these are the people that knew him best, and yet they conclude, at least for the time being, that he is out of his mind. Now, how else could they interpret what was happening? I mean, they had enough. I, I, I don't think it's unreasonable to assume that. And yet, we know that some of the people in his family end up believing in him, end up actually accepting him as God. James is one, his brother. Something happens. There's a greater discovery that follows this. They start out as saying he's crazy, and then they listen to him and they observe and they open their hearts, and they realize, no, there's something to what he's saying. Maybe he is God. Now, I find that this story is one of the many examples in the Gospels, but also in all of the Bible, where people that should be heroes of the story are presented as utter fools, right? I mean, this is the Holy Family. Come on, this is Mary. These are his, his siblings, These are the people, some of them, James, for example, an incredibly important leader in the early church. So people who are reading Mark's gospel, they probably know James. They certainly know Mary. They may know some other other brothers and sisters of Jesus. And they're reading this and they're saying, you guys thought he was out of his mind at one point? You you mean like you didn't always know? You didn't always believe in him? You had this really embarrassing time when you you came and you tried to actually put him away, with Jesus our Messiah, you're one of the people who doubted him. Now, what do you do with a passage like this? I mean, I conclude that it's just how it happened, (laughs) that Mark is actually just reporting what happened. Mark is not interested in legends. He's not interested in in coming up with a new cool religion that will inspire people to more faith. He's actually documenting this, this tremendous lack of faith in the heroes of the church, which makes me think we should trust what Mark is saying. He's, he's not playing games. He's not trying to convince you. He's just simply telling you how things are and what Jesus did and what Jesus said because he trusts that when you see Jesus as he is, you will make your own choice based on that, not based on manipulation or making the record read a little better and maybe, maybe softening some of the edges, maybe presenting some of these early leaders as better than, than they are. I think it makes the Gospels trustworthy. Now, fifthly, we see in verse 22 the reaction of the scribes. Now, they're not just local teachers of the law. Uh, These are the higher-ups who come from Jerusalem. They come to assess Jesus and his ministry. They are sent by maybe the Sanhedrin, but some very important authoritative body. These are the religious leaders. These are the people who determine what's right and what's wrong in Israel. And they come to get a close look at Jesus so that they can decide what to do with him. There's enough people following him. Enough people are getting healed and and demons are getting cast out. Something needs to be done here. We either accept him or we reject him. We have to make a determination, they think. So they come to Galilee, not their favorite place, but they come there anyway, and, to, and, they're, and they're looking to see what's going on. Now, notice that they cannot deny that Jesus' miracles were genuine. They're not questioning the miracles. It's, at this point, it's pretty obvious that people are actually really getting healed. People are actually uh, getting liberated from demonic presence. So they're not saying, oh, this is fake. This is just pretend. You know, we're, this is not real miracles. This is just a pretender. And they're not saying that. They can't say that because of all the people who are around. I mean, when you, when you read the Bible, you, we need to remember that as it was written, people who were there probably read it. Like the Gospel of Mark, one of the earliest Gospels, people who were probably there in Galilee had a chance to read Mark's account. And if Mark was saying something wrong, it was easily could easily be disputed. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 he says, "I'm going to tell you about the resurrection. Jesus really rose from the dead." And then he names people who knew that. He names witnesses. He says, "This is 500 people that were there when Jesus appeared to us." And then there's all these people. He names the apostles. He names actual people that, if you read that, you can go and talk to them and find out if Paul was right. Same with Mark. The same with other writers. They're not making it up. They're saying this is how it happened. These are the people who were there, and just like these these scribes that come, they can't make up a story about Jesus and take it to Jerusalem and expect that everybody was going to believe them. If they went to Jerusalem and said, you know what, this was all fake, no miracles were happening, no demons were being cast out, a bunch of people in Jerusalem were going to say, yeah, but I was in Galilee a few months ago, and my cousin got healed. And what do you do then? So how did they respond to Jesus? They can't dispute the miracles. Well, they have a brilliant, brilliant strategy here. They say he is possessed by Beelzebub. He is possessed by Satan. He is possessed by the prince of demons and it's by the power of Satan himself that he's able to cast out demons. So they're saying these miracles are legitimate, but they're done by this evil power. Of course we can't affirm this ministry. We can't say that this is right. Satan himself is doing that. Jesus is evil. Look at what he's doing with the power of Satan. Now, Jesus, very patiently, I might add, responds with clear logic. Now, this is a lesson for us here. Sometimes reasoning is helpful, sometimes a logical response could be very appropriate. Jesus says, How can Satan cast out Satan? Right? I mean, it's just reason, right? Jesus says, this doesn't make any sense what you're saying. Like you're not making any sense when you say that I am doing these things against Satan while using the power of Satan at the same time. He says if there is division in Satan's house, his whole kingdom, kingdom is going to collapse. If Satan is fighting with himself, if there's a civil war in his realm, who wins? Well, not Satan. That doesn't help him to expand his kingdom. Now he's got to worry about fighting within himself with his own demons. He says it's not beneficial for Satan to use his power to cast out demons because his point is to bring more demons into people. And the fact that Satan's house is being robbed of these people, what Jesus means is now these people are liberated from his power. And the fact that people are, are liberated from under the power of Satan shows that there's another power at play here. There's a greater power here. And the illustration is when you go rob a strong man's house, and I don't know if you've ever done that, but if you do that, you can't go in, right, and expect just to take his stuff and he not do anything about it. You somehow have to deal with the strong man, with the owner of the house, with the protector of the house. You have to do something with him. And Jesus says, if you can come in, in a, into a strong man's house and take his stuff, that means you also have to bind him. You have to immobilize him so he's not in the way, so he can't do anything to you. And Jesus says, the way you know that this is not Satan, not Satan's work is because Satan has been bound. And now he's forced to let these people from under his influence go free. I mean, I, this is an amazing image. I, I, I love that when you read Jesus, his words, right? Jesus can say in one sentence, right? <laughs> More than we can, we can say when we write a book about it. He just gives you one analogy. He gives you one metaphor. He gives you one illustration, and it sticks with you. I mean, what an image. Jesus coming into Satan's house, right? Binding him up and then robbing him, plundering his house, taking people out, taking the people he loves out from under the influence of Satan, as Satan is there and can't do anything. I mean, Jesus says this is what's happening. This is the most logical explanation, that it's not done by Satan's power, but it's done by the power of someone who is greater than Satan. And then the final real-time reaction we see in verses 31 through 35. Again, Jesus' family is back here, and this is what commentators called a Mark and Sandwich, uh, if you care to know. Mark starts a story with his family, then he puts another story in between, and then he ends with another story about his family, which makes us think that story in the middle is pretty important, and we're going to address it in, in a little bit more detail next. But notice how it starts with the family. They come and say, he must be out of his mind, Then you have the dispute with the scribes, and then it ends with his family coming again to Jesus. And as they come, this time, they just want to see him. They just want to see, I'm assuming, that he's okay. And so Jesus says, again, if you're reading that in this culture, in the family oriented culture in an honor oriented culture where you respect your elders you respect your mom right your siblings are your blood you fight for them this sounds very very different doesn't it Jesus says these are, these are not my family He says my family is here my mom and my brothers are here my mom and my brothers are people who are sitting around me who are listening to me who are serving me who are following me Jesus says that people who belong to me, people with whom I am in a relationship with, like family, these deep ties like family, are the people who do the will of God. You may be related to me genetically, but unless you are related to me spiritually, we are not really the same family. Now, what is this will of God that we must do to belong to Jesus? This will of God... It's concentrated in the person and mission of Jesus Christ. Again and again through the Gospels, everything is focused on Him. Everything is focused on His teaching. It's what He says that matters because He is relaying the words of God. It's what He does that matters because He's doing the work of God. And His will is the will of God. So for us to do the will of God is to follow Jesus, is to connect with Him, to see Him as He is is to be a Christian, is to be a follower of Jesus, is to experience that second birth and to be brought into this family, adopted into his home. That's who belongs with Jesus. It's interesting that, you know, today as we dedicate children, and by the way, I never plan these things and somehow they come together and there's parallels, right? We're dedicating children to the Lord, and we are saying that each child, each of the babies we dedicated, they need Jesus themselves. They are not part of Jesus' family just because they are part of a Christian family. Now they have great advantages. They have Christian parents. They have a Christian church behind them. They hear scripture. Yes, those are great advantages. Don't underestimate them. But each one of them will need to meet Jesus on his or her terms. And unless that happens, they're not part of Jesus' family. Unless they do the will of God, By embracing Jesus as he is, seeing him as the Messiah, accepting him, following him, they don't belong to him yet, not really. Now, these are the real-time reactions, but what possible options does it leave us? Modern-day readers, modern-day believers or unbelievers, as we wrestle with Jesus, we can't ignore. I think there are three possible options. And before I give you the list, I'm going to tell you of a news story I came across this week. I think it's as close to a perfect illustration as I can find, which you may dispute when you hear it, but I think it works. A 48-year-old woman claims to be the Queen of Canada, and now she is holding court in an abandoned school in Rich in southwestern Saskatchewan. The QAnon-inspired conspiracy theorist and her 15 to 25 followers have been traveling around Canada in motorhomes until they set up camp in Richmond, a village of about 150 people about a week ago. The self-proclaimed queen issued decrees absolving her telegram followers from all bills and debts, (laughs) which resulted in people losing their homes and vehicles the people of Richmond stage a protest with tractors and trucks kind of surrounding her camp, insisting that the queen and her followers leave their town. Now, what should we make of this person? There are three options. The first option is that she is a con artist taking advantage of her followers. Okay, Many people would believe that. She's tricking people into following her. Maybe there's money involved. Maybe she's convincing people not to pay their mortgage but give money to her. I don't know. Maybe uh, she just likes the praise of people. Maybe she just likes to be addressed as Her Majesty. We don't know. But there's something perhaps she's getting from her followers. So that's one option. She's a con artist. The second option is that she genuinely believes She is part of a vast conspiracy which makes her a legitimate ruler of Canada. And maybe it's funny now, but there will be a day when she will be crowned and everybody in Canada will bow their knee to her. She may genuinely believe that. Now, she may believe that because her mind is not in line with reality herself. Maybe there's mental illness involved. Or she may believe that she was deceived herself. Somebody tricked her into thinking that. Somebody has influenced her, and she simply followed someone else's lead. And the third option, of course, is that she is, in fact, the Queen of Canada. That's an option, isn't it? The third option is that she, what she says is true, what she claims is true, in which case you should stop paying your mortgage and drive north, right? Now, the same set of options apply, exactly the same set of options apply to Jesus. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be the king, right? Jesus traveling with 15 to 25 followers, setting up camp in different places. People wanting him to leave their town. This is actually very, very similar. And it poses the same issues, doesn't it? Do we believe him? What is he? What are the options? How can we respond? What are the possible options as we respond to Jesus? Now, I'm going to give you what is called the Lewis Trilemma C.S. Lewis Trilemma. Trilemma just means three options. The same three options we would apply to the Queen of Canada, we can apply to Jesus. Now, many apologists use that, the same idea, but C.S. Lewis popularized it and its name got associated with it. This is what Lewis says in Mere Christianity. Now, he's responding to the fact that most people in the world who deal with Jesus assume that Jesus is just a nice, great human moral teacher, right? That's what they think. Most people in the world don't think Jesus, don't respond to Jesus in the way that people responded in Mark. They think Jesus is great. He taught some good things. He lived a good life, cut short by by a crucifixion. This is how Lewis responds. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish things, the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man And call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious, Lewis says, that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Now, I think Lewis is right. The Jesus of the Gospels, the Jesus of Mark, does not leave us the option of seeing him as a nice, inspiring, moral teacher. And yet this is what most people think of him. It is more likely that he was out of his mind, as his family thought, or that he was demon-possessed, as the Jerusalem scribes concluded, then he was a nice moral teacher. When you think of Jesus, your options really are just three. Liar, lunatic, or Lord. He was deceiving others, or maybe he himself was deceived, or he was and is divine. He was bad, he was mad, or... He is God. Those are the options. And as Luz points out, the the third option, that He is God, that He is the Messiah, that He is the Son of God, came to redeem the world, is the most likely of the three. But many people reject Him nonetheless. Now let's look at verses 28 through 30 briefly, where Jesus tells us what the stakes are as we consider what our response to Him is. Should be. This is what Jesus says in response to the scribes that tell him, You're demon possessed, you're doing it by the power of Satan. He says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. He is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, He has an unclean. Spirit. Now, unfortunately, this passage has been misunderstood and misapplied by many Christians and Christian teachers alike. We need to deal with this unpardonable sin, this eternal sin. What is it? And is it possible that you may have committed it? There are some people who have convinced themselves that they have committed this sin and they will never be forgiven. We need to deal with this. So let's look at the context first to understand what Jesus is saying. And then I'll give you a word of encouragement. Jesus is responding to the scribes, these teachers of the law, who have concluded that God's work in Jesus is actually the work of the devil and must be rejected on that basis. They're calling good evil and thus reject Jesus. The unpardonable sin that Jesus is convicting them of is ultimate rejection of Jesus and his offer of salvation. The unpardonable eternal sin is the ultimate rejection of Jesus and his offer of salvation. It is the persistent resistance to the Holy Spirit until the very end. Now, all of us blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. All of us reject Jesus, His commands. All of us say something wrong or even blasphemous about God. And Jesus says all those sins will be forgiven except for one. The unpardonable eternal sin is if you persist in it and if you reject me ultimately, you will not be forgiven. The one sin that can never be forgiven is the final refusal to believe in Jesus. And ultimately, it's that final unbelief that puts people in hell. This is what Jesus is saying. Now, notice the scribes come to him. They have a specific response to him. They're saying, this is not real. We will not listen to you. This is from Satan and not from God. You are nothing to us. It is meaningless to pay attention to you. And Jesus says, if this attitude persists, And if you continue to resist what the Holy Spirit is doing through me, which is the offer of grace to all who believe, if you continue to resist it, this sin, your sin, will not be forgiven. And you will go to hell unforgiven, eternally condemned, because you have rejected the one hope that God has for you to be saved. On the one hand, you look at that and you say, this is very serious. Of course it is. How you respond to Jesus today is incredibly serious. The stakes are your eternal destiny. The stakes is hell without God, eternal punishment, torment away from His face, loss of everything good that God created. That's one option. That's the unpardonable sin. That's what it will take. If you continue to resist the Holy Spirit, you will end up there. Or accepting Jesus as Lord, seeing Him as He actually is, actually being in line with reality and saying you are who you say you are and I will follow you. And as you do that, your eternal destiny is now what's given to you is life with Him forever in a renewed creation, enjoying the goodness of the Lord forever without sin, without pain, without sickness, without guilt, without shame. All those things will be removed from you Because this is what Jesus came to do. Now let me, amen. Let me me speak to those who might worry that they have committed this eternal sin. There are Christians who who say, I used to be a Christian and then I I blasphemed against the Holy Spirit and now no matter how much I'm going to pray, how much I'm going to hope God will never forgive me because I have committed the unpardonable sin. Now let me say one very simple thing. If you are one of those people, if that worries you, the fact that you are worried about it, the fact that you are worried about it proves that you have not committed that sin. It's actually very simple. If your conscience is upsetting you, if you're worried that you might blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, that you might resist Him in any way, there's some faith in there, isn't there? You're concerned You can't just blaspheme against God and move on with your life like nothing happened. No, it worries you that you may have done that. That means the Holy Spirit is working in your life. He continues to convict you of sin. Notice the scribes, they don't care. (laughs) They don't care that they blaspheme the Holy Spirit. They don't care that they're rejecting Jesus because their consciences are seared. But you, if you worry about it, Go to Jesus and rest in Him. Embrace His grace again and just trust Him that He is actually greater than your conscience. And He will win you over. And He will keep you in His grace. And you will be with Him forever. Now I'm going to end on on this challenge to us. You've seen the choices laid out. Real-time reactions are possible options. You have the the ultimate rejection of the scribes, which, which is for everyone who rejects Jesus throughout their lives and finally. And now I'm going to ask you to make this new allegiance with Jesus. Now, for some of you, you've been walking with Jesus and that's a renewal. That's an acknowledgement. I am with him. I am following. This is who he, sa- who he says he is. He is. That's how I see him. So renew that faith. Renew that commitment. And for some of you, this may be the first time you see him as Lord. You may have mistakenly thought of him as a moral teacher. You may have even thought he's a lunatic or a liar or deceived himself, or maybe even a demon-possessed person. I'm going to ask you to look at him, and I'm praying that the Holy Spirit opens your heart and that you wouldn't resist the Holy Spirit, and that you will actually go to Jesus and embrace him as he is. And here's my one big argument why you should accept him. And that is that this Jesus, God, Lord of all creation, the most beautiful person, the most powerful person in creation, this person came and was rejected for you so he can accept you. He was rejected for you. He was ultimately rejected for you so you can be ultimately accepted by God what happened on the cross Jesus was treated as a person who had committed the unpardonable sin as a person who had blasphemed against the Holy Spirit as a person who deserves hell why did he do that he did it in our place so we could be accepted by God. What is our response to that? I mean, this is the person who came to plunder the strong man's house, and I was in that house. And he took me out at a great cost to himself because for him to bind, bind Satan, he had to be bound. For him to welcome the rejected people, he had to be rejected. For him to save us from death, he had to die that's what happened on the cross that's who Jesus is the reason Jesus is telling these demons to shut up and tell nobody that he is the son of God is because later as we will see he will reveal himself as the crucified Messiah not just any king but a king who came to die and rise again for his people that's how Jesus wants to be known that's the Jesus you make your response to Is that Jesus a liar? Is that Jesus a lunatic? Is that Jesus Jesus a legend that we made up? Or is that Jesus Lord of all? And if he is Lord, you can't ignore him. You bow your knee and you praise him and you follow him and you obey everything he says and you live your life for him. You become part of this new nation you become part of this new family. That's how you know you're following Jesus.